will begin our Torah study for the evening. And we will begin with a heavy hitter. It's called the Aseret Hadibrot, the Ten Utterances or Commandments. And if you would, we can turn to page 29, I believe it is, in your books, yes. The teacher's version and the student version are different. Um... Hopefully the Torah isn't different. (laughs) But the page numbers are different. All right. So um, last time we talked about, you know, a little bit more in the spirit of kind of revelation and the preparation for revelation. And now we're actually beginning what the content of revelation actually was, which begins with um, these ten utterances. The reason I say it like that is because in the Torah, there are Sarah had debrot. Um, or aseret, uh, really aseret advarim, um, but which means utterances or spoken words. But the rabbis translating these utterances into commands, we get used to calling them the Ten Commandments. But it's not the Ten Commandments in the Torah. It's the Ten Utterances um, or the Ten Things That Were Spoken. Um, Hello, Ben. Welcome, welcome. So we're on page uh, 29. So what I'd love to do is jump in. I'd like to read through the entire Ten Commandments together, um, just so we have the background of what they are. I'd like to go through um, uh, how we Jews number the Ten Commandments, because it's not the same as the Christians. Um, And then we'll move to some of the other source material. Okay? Would anybody be willing to read in the English on page 29, starting with verse 1? Anyone? Okay. 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 Yeah, Yeah, starting with God spoke all these words saying. Yeah, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord. I, the Lord, am your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the house of bondage. Keep going. Yes, please. (laughs) You shall have no other gods beside me. You shall not make for yourself a sculptured image or any other likeness what is in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am an impassioned God visiting the guilt Um, of your parents, upon the children, upon the third and upon the fourth generation of those who rejected me. But showing the kindness to to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not swear falsely by the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not clear one who swears falsely by his name. I'm just going to pause for a minute. Um, I forgot to mention, I just every time we study together and we read, um, try to think of like what questions you have about the text. If there's anything interesting, like that's interesting how it says it that way, or um, I wonder this, or I wonder that. Like, <clears throat> Either take literal notes or mental notes about it. Okay, and go ahead. Number eight, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days, you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, or your cattle, or the stranger who is within your settlements. Go on. Yeah. 
talking. Yeah, keep going. Verse 11, next page. That was not 10 yet. For the six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that is them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Mm-hmm. Oh, there it is. Honor thy mother and father that you may long endure on the land that the Lord your God is assigning to you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against a na- your neighbor. You shall not covet the neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female slave or his ox or his ass um, or anything that is your neighbor's. All the people witness the thunder and lightning and the blare of the horn and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they fell back and stood at a distance. You speak to us, they said to Moses, and we will obey but let not God speak to us, lest we die. Moses answered the people, Be not afraid, for God has come only in order to test you, and in order, in order that the fear of him may be ever with you, so that you do not go astray. Okay. Big on guilt. Yeah, well, we'll see. Um, all right, I'm going to give you a few seconds to absorb that. Um, sounds familiar. Sounds familiar. I didn't make you stand, so that's, that's different. Um, all right, so what do you, any, let's collect some questions or thoughts. Anybody have any, anything strike anybody as interesting or anything catch your eye or? Some of the uh, commandments, he includes an explanation, and in some, it's just an outright this is the phenomenon. Right. Um, for example, which one um, so, can you point to that has an explanation, for so example? Remember the Sabbath. Right. Keep it holy. There's a fairly long explanation. And mm-hmm. then further down in verse 13, you've got uh, four moments. Uh, boom, 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 boom. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So, oh, by the way, um, let's enumerate them um, according to the Jewish way of framing it. So, Verse 1 contains no commandments. God spoke all these words saying. Verse 2, that's the first commandment. By the way, the Christians do not see that as a commandment. They see that as part of the introduction. On the shot level, meaning the straight-up contextual reading, they may not be wrong. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. But, but, but Jews... This is the first commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the house of bondage. Yeah. Period. That's a commandment somehow. Wait. All right. Isn't it? I learned it probably wrong. That's your question. Um, yeah, I did learn it here. I'm the Lord thy God. Thou shalt have no other God before me. That's what I thought one was. Mm-mm. I'm wrong, huh? Number two. Well, you shall have no other gods before me. I mean, as part of number one. That's what I thought number yeah. one was. Yeah. So, and then you have not making a sculptured image. Um, you know, and all that through verse 6, right? That's the second commandment. The third commandment is you shall not swear falsely by the name of the Lord your God. The fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath day, and that is 8 through verse 11. Why is it broken up like, why is it broken up like that? What, what do you, in what way, what's confusing about how it's broken up? It's not confusing. Why is one commandment broken up? It, it, it gives an explanation. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And it gives an explanation after that. 
But why is it broken up into ten, 9, 10, and 11? You mean why are they separate verses? Yeah, why are they separate yeah. verses? Got it. Okay, I didn't yeah. understand the question. Okay. Why are they separate verses? I actually don't really know the answer. I can't give you a, um, you know, some science, you know, like scholarly answer as to why it's broken up into multiple verses. I think it, it, it's kind of similar to Simon's observation. Your question folds into his observation that some of the commandments are not only the command, but also some sort of rationale, or maybe even letting us know a little bit of the consequence or the reward, depending on which commandment it is. Um, did you want to say, Bruce? Yeah. Just really simple about it. Yeah. When you unroll the scroll, these little numbers aren't there. It's so also true. Broken up. It's actually somebody assigned verse numbers. Right. Right. But that's not original. I know. I know. It that's true. Right. I know that. That's true. There's no little numbers in this scroll. That's true. The, the master reads assign the verse numbers. The uh, uh, the Christians assign the chapters. So, yeah. I was just going to say that you know if you take aside the the numbering. It, there's still a, a, a large body of text that deals with Shabbat, <coughs> and that was one thing that struck me as I was reading it. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the in the Torah there are gaps, though. Mm-hmm. Yes. To the commandment mm-hmm. about Shabbat versus the other commandments. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so sometimes when we look at how it's laid out, and I mean by that both of the comments that were made, like how many verses go along with something, that can give us a sense, perhaps, or one might impute some sort of importance to the fact that there's multiple verses about something. Um, and then also the layout, there's the what they call the Petuchot and Stumot, which were really the ancient Masoretes way of dividing up the text as opposed to by chapter and verse. Um, they did Parshiot and these Petuchot and Stumot, which are open spaces, either full open space or a partial open space. I mean, that's what you would notice in the Torah. Sometimes it's nicer to read it actually from a tikkun, and then you can see how it's actually broken down. Um, but uh, honor your mother and father is verse 12. That's the fifth commandment. Then verse 13, 6, 7, and 8. You shall not murder, commit adultery, not steal. Verse, uh, then 9, it's still in verse 13, is you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And then verse 14 is number 10, not coveting, which is a full verse um, about just one commandment. And then 15, 16, and 17 are kind of the aftermath, right? Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. So that's how the, n- the numbers break down in terms of the commandments. Does anybody want to continue along the uh, lines of what you've noticed? I just noticed, again, I don't know if this is the first time, but I certainly have never focused on it. On honor your father and mother, it's tied to um, somewhat randomly that you may endure on the land that God is, that God is assigning to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that... that you know, the, there's obviously a lot that goes on about the land in, you know, in Shmot and a lot in the Torah about the land. But to tie to, I never really thought about it as being tied to that commandment alone. There you go. Very nice. Anybody else? Question. Yes. So if the Christians don't consider the first, uh, what we consider first commandment as commandment, mm-hmm. do they still... I assume they still think there are Ten Commandments. Yeah, they break it out as, you shall have no other God besides me. And then... You shall not make yourself a sculpted image. And then uh, yeah. uh, you shall not bow down, I think, is maybe the third 50, one. Page 59 and 60. Have, but that's, have it? Have the, both yeah. a Protestant version and a Catholic version. Oh, cool. Thank you. Wait, I have a question. That's a Catholic version. Which page? Oh, the right 59. But, there you go. Oh, Excuse me. I do notice that if, 
Christianity accepts as no graven images, how do they justify that churches are full of statues? Wait, say it again. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's not a question for a rabbi, but this is. Not a <laughs> <laughs> I, I honestly just didn't hear you. So uh, no, I'm saying it's a question for a priest. If um, Christianity accepts no graven images, mm-hmm. then why are many churches filled with statues? So uh. Catholic churches are filled with statues, and oh. they don't have that as one of their Ten Commandments. Protestant churches have that as one of their Ten Commandments, and. They don't so, have a. They don't usually have a. As so many, it's Indian. Or maybe not even any. I know I've been into some Baptist churches. They have, they don't have any statues. So Catholicism has a different tenet. They have a different tenet. If you look on page fifty nine and sixty, there's there's a slight change. Yeah. There's nothing about graven images. I just never understood. And their justification is that they don't worship Mary, the mother of Jesus, or they don't worship okay. Saint Joseph, but they'll pray to them. Gotcha. Like intermediaries. But going back to what you said earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Go ahead, Bruce. Decent right. You said Aserat Right. You're getting stuck on whether this is or isn't a commandment. But even by its on its face, as you said. They're not commandments. They're not commandments. So and this is what I challenged you with in the beginning. So let me frame the, 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 the framing the larger discussion here is this. What are these things anyway? And why are they special? And why did God at Revelation say these things as opposed to some other things? Like, for example, what if you know Judaism and what's important to Judaism, or perhaps you have an impression for what's repeated in the Torah, what are some things that are clearly missing from here that you might have imagined would have come in in a core set of commandments, whether they be 10 or 15? I mean, it didn't have to be 10. So what's missing here that gets repeated a lot and that's really at a core to, to Judaism? Be kind to the stranger. Okay, some, some ethical commandments about reminding people you were the stranger in the land of Egypt that gets repeated a thousand times. Business, not here. Business rules. So the business rules are not here. How what else? Live, how to live in the Tzedakah. land. Eretz Israel. Tzedakah is not here. Mm. What else? Others as you would have done. Yeah. Okay, so. good. What else gets repeated? I'll tell you, I'll, I'll, I'll put in one that you might not come up with, but kashrut. Gets repeated like eight times in the Torah. Not here? Sacrifices. No. Sacrifices, the whole sacrificial no, right. liturgical system. Not here. What else do we, what, what are we about to celebrate coming up? All the holidays. All the holidays besides Shabbat. Right. Yeah. They're not here either. So, what, so why? One of the, <laughs> exactly. So, one of the frames for this whole discussion is it's like, well, what are these supposed to be? And I started out, for those of you who are a little late, started out by saying that, the, the, the Torah text itself calls these utterances, like from the root ledaber, to speak. The ten things that were spoken by God, right? It's not called, you know, the commandments, right? It's not called the aseret hamitzvot, right? That would be commandments. But we've, the, over time, the rabbis have translated these utterances into commands, right? So some of them read command-like, some of them, not really. Um, and so you can see why it's probably a better frame and why your Melton book, when they translate it, they're going to keep calling them a dibur. A dibur. A dibur is your substitute for a commandment because that comes from the actual word in the Torah, you know, the devarim or the dibrot in the, in the feminine. So those are actually the things that were said. So if they're not really meant to be ten commandments... 
because they're really 613 in the Torah. Um, And there are 10 things that God said. One of the frames for some of what we're going to look at is what what's their purpose? Why are they, why are we center you know, why we stand up for them? Number one, if they're not just utterances that evolved into commandments, as time goes on, so why do we stand up for it? And number two is when did it become, when did the custom become that we stood up? Well, the second one is a historical question, and I don't know exactly. I mean, they were already doing it in like the Talmudic times when they were reading um, the Sarah that you wrote. Um, I will, I will kind of go the other side of the argument. Have you noticed that in our liturgical prayers, do we really ever mention the Ten Commandments? Does the Ten Commandments ever appear really in anything that we do other than we read the Torah when we get to the Ten Commandments and then on what holiday? Shavuot, which is a holiday where we commemorate the receiving of the Torah. So it really only gets special mention liturgically in one holiday, which is about receiving the Torah. Otherwise, we don't... We don't repeat it. You know, we repeat the Shema all the time. There are lots of biblical texts included in our liturgy, but not the Ten Commandments. So I would actually argue, whereas the, the, the standing thing is a sign of respect, so that's different, and it makes, oh, oh the Ten Commandments are the Ten Utterances. Um, but actually, the other side of the question could be asked, too, which is, if they're so important, how come we don't, like, deal with them all the time? You know, how come they're not in our face in the liturgy all the time. We repeat the Shema all the time, we repeat other things all the time, but we don't repeat the Ten Utterances all the time. And then, Rod. This doesn't necessarily answer the question, but this is the setup. I mean, part of it, it's important. You asked why is this Why is this what was spoken in Revelation? I guess I would say one of the reasons it's important is because of the context in which it was spoken, mm-hmm. because it was there, and also For sure. that it was God speaking to the people. This wasn't God speaking to Moses and say, go tell the people this is it. And even the last lines where the people say, we don't want to hear from God, we're afraid you tell us, you, you speak to us. But this is, now, again, it begs the question, why is this what he... Right, that's my, yeah, that was and, my you question. Know, I guess maybe, I mean, one rationalization as I'm sitting here would be that it's sort of the... the you know, the Kitsur, this is the, the, the cliff notes that you can take with you wherever you go. And you may not remember everything that's in the Torah, but if you know these ten things, you got pretty much a lot of what you need, a need, and the rest extrapolates pretty quickly. That if you're, if you look at, there are five that are written in command language, by the way. You say they're not commandments, but, but Kaved is, is in Sibui. Yeah, definitely, lo, a bunch lo, of them are. You know, those are commandments. For sure. And if you look at those, maybe. Again, knowing the context in which it's given, maybe that is the ethical commands for how you treat people and how you deal with other people and how you deal with God. These are the, you know, the, these are the big ones, and you can mm-hmm. extrapolate from there, but it, it, it's at least the notes you can put in your pocket and cake with you if, you if you don't have everything down yet. Sure. Yeah, anybody else? Go ahead. Oh, I, I said Rod would be next. I apologize. Yeah. Then no, Beth, there is, you want to... said a lot of what I was going to say. Uh, what's critical about it is this is the revelation to all of the Jewish people at once. This is the the biggest miracle of all, and this is you know this is what Orthodoxy is based on. This is God's word. This is when God gave the Torah to the Jewish people. So if God told you you have to do something, is it really a choice? Mm-hmm. But then, what does that mean? You know, God spoke, but He doesn't really speak. How does God speak? And did all the people hear? Well, 
You know, the people don't want it here. You know, it's just too overwhelming for them. Yeah. They said, you know, we can't handle it. Speak to Moses and Moses will tell us. That's right. So what does this even mean? Right, well, so I think the theological questions that I would articulate from that are, when it says God spoke to the people, what does it mean that God spoke? Did he speak in Hebrew? Did they hear a voice? Um, that would be the obvious reading, because that's what we think. Speak, speaking is speaking. Um, or does it somehow mean communicate um, in a different type of way? There's debate, actually, in the commentary about how much of this got, God got through before that there might be a kind of out-of-whack chronology about when they interrupted Moses and told him, you know, enough is enough. It might not have been that he got through all ten and then they said this. There's a commentary that say God only spoke one letter, just the Aleph of Anochi, and they were already, which what's the irony about speaking the Aleph? No sound. There's no sound. In other words, he didn't really even speak before they were like, all right, this is, <laughs> this is way too much, right? Um, that's the, there's a Hasidish, you know, uh, commentary about that. But anyway, um, so what does it mean that God spoke, God communicated? What did they actually hear? How did they respond to it? That's another, another major, major, major topic about um, how to understand, you know, what happened. But it's the selectivity that you mentioned, and that I'm still kind of mm-hmm. completely fuzzy on that. Yeah. I was embarrassingly old before it struck me on its face that Moses didn't go up Mount Sinai and get the Torah based on all the rest of the Torah in which God told Moshe this, and he told Moshe this, and he told Moshe this, he told him this in the plains of Moab, etc. So the whole Torah, what happened up on Mount Sinai? Aside from I have no idea, there's a whole lot of the Torah that comes after they leave Sinai. So, that's also a good thing. It's like, good question is, what actually, after all this, when Moses goes back up for the 40 days, and so on and so forth, what were they doing up there? Um, there's lots of different theories. What was actually communicated? Yeah, God would have told Moses that he's not going to make it in, yet for some reason he was still kind of upset about that. Right. So that would be if you're if you're if you're Bruce. If you're Bruce, then the obvious assumption is is that he didn't know all that, right? That when he went up there, he may have told him, let's just say, the content, like here are the laws. Here's how you're gonna. Do the sacrifices, you know, certain things that whatever he communicated to Moshe about some of the content. But in terms of the history that transpired that gets recorded in the Torah, that happened as it happened. The Lord said to Moses, wherever they were, and then that got added on to the Torah. Sinai. The Torah right. is still being revealed for the next 40 years. Right. So um, the question then becomes, so for some, though, even though it's not logical to think that Moses was so upset or almost shocked or yeah. surprised that he didn't get in, that somehow God did reveal it to Moses, and even Moses already knew everything. Um, and why he would still be so upset, or did he think God was going to change his mind? I don't know. It's a, a harder, it's a harder sell um, that interpretation, but it exists. Um, it definitely exists. Uh, you know, we're going to get into this maybe in, a, in another class, but um, there's also the idea of Rosenzweig. He's a like a somewhat modern commentator, right? And he basically said what happened on Mount Sinai, there's content, but the content that happened on Mount Sinai was the human being's response to God's revelation. <coughs> In other words, God didn't say anything. God revealed God's self, whatever that means. And in response to God's revelation, the people came up with this. 
or Moses came up with this, or however you want to frame it. It was almost like, not subliminal communication, but it was more like it, it, it kind of occurred to them, or it, it, it brought it out, as opposed to God said, number one, you know, number two, and then he kind of set it out. What does that mean exactly? It's a little fuzzy, but Rosenzweig's big thing is, is that the, the key is that God revealed God's self to the people and basically said, I am here. And I did create this world, basically, and I am with you. And the people's response to that was the Torah, right? If there so, were a being that were that supreme to do all these things, this is what it would want of me. Kind of, you know, something like that, right? Heschel's in between. Heschel believes in, um, you know, it's like a dual language curriculum here. God speaks in God, and we only speak in human and the human can only understand so much of God, right? So God is revealing God's self, which is infinite, but we are finite. So how much of it did we understand? We had to translate it. We translated it. Maybe God was actually saying things, right? Even these things, but we had to translate it into a human language called Hebrew and break it out into sentences. You know, God is beyond sentences in human language. He can speak in any language or all languages at once. Um, so... Anytime you take the finite and try to capture the infinite, there's, there's going to be something lost in translation. He calls it a midrash. He says basically the Torah is a midrash on revelation. It's the best human response recording of what could have happened if the ultimate and supreme God revealed God's self to human beings. So that's, that's kind of his stance on the whole thing. Is your brain hurting yet? No. <laughs> so what do you know? You can't derive the whole Torah from this, right? These aren't even the chapter headings. This is looking at the whole Torah selectively at just this. Well, that's one way of understanding it. Tells it. us why this. Well, that, that's a good question. I want to get to it. Yeah. I, oh, sorry. No, I just said my. You said is your brain hurting? I just said. Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I was looking at it in historical context. I mean, these people have just come out of Egypt from generations of slavery. If you look at the first page, all of this is differentiating yeah. what it is to be a Jew from what they've experienced for hundreds of years in Egypt. Um, and he's setting it out, and he's saying, "Look, you know, there were other gods there, but now you only have one." Hmm. And there was no Shabbat in Egypt, but now you're going to have Shabbat. So the, I, I was just looking at it that way, that, you know, maybe that's why these are the things that were highlighted. Since at that point he wasn't going to give them meat, they didn't really need kosher. <laughs> so, and there's no Shabbos in, in line 10. Yeah, yeah go ahead. I, I, Debbie, did you get a This is, I, I think I'm just confused time-wise. So Moses goes up, and the people that are maybe hearing all these holy rules, but where's the golden calf in all of this? Is this okay. after? Uh, that's why I'm confused. Great, great question. Great question. Um, I'm going to say one thing that's going to not help you, but, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's going to give you some context for this whole enigma of this section of the Torah. The chronology of how, how everything happens is hard to determine. Meaning, if you looked verse by verse, Moses goes up, and then he's down, and then he's halfway up, and then it's like, where was he exactly when this is happening? If you read in the micro, you think you know. Oh, it says that he was on the mountain. And then you read another, wait a second, how did he get on the t The last thing we heard, he was here. You know, it's like it doesn't say, 
it's, it gets confusing. So that's number one. It is a little bit hard to understand. Um, two, the, the chronology supposedly is this happens, revelation happens. Then Moses either stays up or goes up, depending on where he was during all this happening, goes up to the mountain to receive the rest of the Torah, as Bruce brought up, whatever that is. Um, and the people are down there. And during that time, according to their calculation, Moses says, I'll be back basically in 40 days. They're looking at their watch and checking off on the calendar, and they think time has passed. And that's when they freak out. That's technical term. And, um, and, and then they, that's when the golden calf happens. And then Moses comes down and throws down the, the tablets and so on and so forth. That's basically the chronology of things. The Parshiot play around with some of this stuff, um, you know, in terms of when the, the tabernacle laws were given and certain other things that kind of mess things up a little bit with the chronology. Um, but that's the basic understanding of the narrative part of the story. So I don't want to leave you totally hanging with this question that Bruce is, is coming back to, which is why these things? Um, but let's just put the real answer on the table. We don't know. The Torah presents itself. It's the original. You know, it presents itself as it presents itself, and then we have to figure it out. By the way, this was mind-opening mind to me. It may be obvious to you, or you've already dealt with this before, so you might say, okay, whatever, and move on. But Hebrew language... The grammar didn't come first. The Torah came first, and then the grammar was assumed from the body of text, right? So the words and what they meant, it's not like there was a dictionary, and then, you know, so the Torah's the Torah, and we figured out what it meant and what the grammar was and how to understand it afterwards. Do you understand, you know what I'm saying? Because um, all of our commentary, even the Masoretes, they come subsequent. It's hard to know... Um, what kind of accompanied the Torah in terms of, you know, explaining itself. That's one of the reasons why, like, biblical scholars really love their author theory of different authors because it helps them, they feel that it helps them understand contemporary, com like, to the Torah, you know, contemporary commentary because they match it up with the historical reality and then they feel like they could helps them understand the text better. Um, there's, I can see the attractiveness of doing that because otherwise we're reading, always reading backwards. Um, but that's essentially the case. But one theory, and I want you to test it out on yourself as we go through the, some of the source material, is that the Aserah brought are kind of like an educational curriculum. And they're a curriculum of, the, of not all the, but major tenets in the Torah that fall into a particular category. And that category is things that a human being, not just a Jew, things that a human being, if they were attuned to God, if they... If God were revealed to them, they would be able to figure out as truth. So if you look back through it, I am the Lord your God, right, who brought you out of Egypt. That's, that's me. Recognize me, right? I revealed myself to you. Recognize me. You shall have no other God besides me, right? There's, there's, no, there's no breaking up of the godliness, right? There's no sea god, moon god, whatever. It's just me. Um, don't make yourself a sculptured image or likeness because that represents a belief in idolatry and breaking me up. So they're, 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 it's a subset of the other one. Don't bow down to them. Don't serve them. This is all part of the same idea of not breaking up God into more than one. Um, and so on and so forth. 
Don't swear falsely by the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not clear one who swears falsely by his name. Again, this could be a natural understanding. You don't use God's name in vain or say something false using God's name, right? If God really is the true one of the universe. The Sabbath. That one you might argue with this theory, but according to this theory it says there's a rhythm of time that the world was created in. Six days the world was created, seventh day God rested. It's embedded in the rhythm of the universe. And we, eventually, if you know God and you understand God and God is revealed to you, you'll understand that Shabbat. you understand Shabbat. You'll get it. You need that one day of rest. Um, and you'll understand that it comes in this proportion. Um, why did the animals need it? Why did the animals need it? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure how to answer that question in that frame. Um, they... they they're part of the natural universe. Six days, the world was... But I said, is the assumption that... that I'm sorry, that I'm, I'm not trying to demean it, but is the assumption that the animals knew God or, or were revealed in the same manner so that they... No, I don't think so. Where, where do you see that as I, I Im, it, embedded I, I in the text? I just remember it saying, you know, it's, it should be a Sabbath for you as well as for your... For, or your cattle. Yeah, no, and, and, it, and it's explicit in the Torah that you have to let your animals rest, but that doesn't necessarily imply that That's they... That's just making sure you're not working. Because they're, they're, they're part of God's creations and they're under your control. So you're resting all of God's... You're also not supposed to farm, right? You, the yeah, trees don't nice rest, but... Of course you're supposed to be nice to animals, but I don't... What I, what, I, what I don't want to do is to, while I'm explaining this theory to to take us too far away. Yes, but that's not in the Ten Commandments. It doesn't say don't be nice to animals in here. Um, although that should be something perhaps that we would be able to figure out ourselves also. Um, but these are kind of major tenets um, that, that so goes the theory. That in, if God was revealed to you and you really understood God, these are some things that you would have come up with. Honoring your father and mother and the importance of family. Um, and perhaps understanding that Father, Mother, and God, it's the Jewish trinity, I guess, you know? That, no, seriously. Father and Mother and God all were part of creating you, right. right? God is the ultimate creator that gave the power to human beings through, you know, um, being like a sexual procreation that we can have children and we can, we can create other human beings. So the Talmud talks about this a lot, about there's three partners in creation of a human being. It's God and the mom and dad. Um, so, and then you get to some of these ethical ones. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness, and don't covet. And all these things, according to this theory, are things that if, if you really knew God kind of thing, you would, you would understand that. This meshes, for example, with um, the idea of chok and mishpat, which are two different kinds of law. Mishpat are laws that have a rational explanation. Chok is a law that exists in the Torah with no explanation given. Can you give me an example of one of the major chukim, one of the uh, major chok that I mentioned before? Murder. Well, murder... Kind of, uh, I guess. Um, I, murder isn't considered a mishpat. Maybe it's because it's, self, it's obvious, but um, kashrut. Kashrut is mystery. Anybody who tells you they know why we have kashrut is expressing to you maybe one of the classic commentaries on it. We've tried to explain it to ourselves, and that's fine. We should try to explain it to ourselves. But there is nowhere in the entire Tanakh even that gives an explanation that goes along with why we should keep kosher. Right? It's not obvious. <laughs> if God were to reveal your, God's self to us, 
Perhaps it would not be obvious why one should keep kashrut. Um, this is something that God, quote unquote, added, you know, uh, uh, ritually for whatever reason that God added it, but it's not one of the ones, and that's particular to Jews. Now, I'm not saying that all these commandments were originally not particular to Jews, um, but what I think I am saying is, is that this theory, and it's just a theory, right? It's just a theory. Um, this theory is that God revealed God's self to the Jewish people as the one true God for the first time to human beings. So this isn't just for Jews. The whole world, quote-unquote, is watching. This is the group that just, because of God, defeated the greatest civilization at the time, Egypt, ran into the wilderness, and then had this revelatory experience. Everybody's watching what happens to the Israelites, these crazy Israelites who somehow managed to get this powerful God on their side to release them from bondage and lay waste to Egypt, right? And so the commandments or the debrot, the utterances that are announced from the mountain, which are announced not only to the Israelites, but also what we call the Erev Rav, the other groups that went out with Israelites. Some of you know this and some of you don't, that it wasn't just Israelites who left Egypt. Any other group that didn't want to stay, they went with the Israelites and it was okay. God said it was okay. They weren't Jews. They weren't Israelites. Uh, Jews is an anachronistic term. Um, they weren't Israelites. They weren't B'nai Israel. They were not. But they came with us. Um, and f- for them and for the rest of the world, these were utterances that other folks could s- hear and listen to and say, oh. And it would help them reveal that to them, the truth that, oh, there, maybe there is one God. Right? It would kind of click somehow. Whereas Kashrut might not have clicked. Sukkot might not have clicked. You know, there's a number of things, the sacrificial system, the way that we did it, may or may not have clicked. Um, but these are things that if God was in your face type of thing, you would understand. Now, is that the only explanation? No. But it's something that's interesting. Yeah. I, I always thought, probably my mother told me, that the reason that we did things like keep kosher and where keep hot and all that is just to establish, to differentiate ourselves from other peoples, to make us these unique people that were given the Torah. It's a great explanation. Uh, and probably, according to um, Professor uh, Kramer at uh, JTS, who's the expert on Kashrut um, at JTS and its history and whatever, that's probably the core of the explanation. Um, but that doesn't mean we really know that that's the explanation. That is a, a classic explanation that has been raised up as the most likely scenario, especially for, I'll say it this way, the rabbi's um, expansion of all the kashrut laws. right? Because you have some of the basics in the Torah, like don't cook a calf in its mother's milk is in the Torah, which animals we should eat is in the Torah, but it really doesn't say anything about not mixing milk and meat, you know. Or how sharp the knife has to be. How sharp the knife has to be. It doesn't, it doesn't really, no. And it doesn't say anything about separate dishes, right? Um, so there's a, there's a bunch of things that we've really expanded upon. And now today, it's like you have to have two different ovens, you have to have two different dishwashers, you have to, yeah, two different sinks. I mean, my grandfather, may he continue to live and be well, is 95 years old. He's an Orthodox rabbi, okay? Um, He grew up in Borough Park. When when, When he here continues to hear now, he's not really with it to have this type of discussion, but a few years ago he was still able to have this type of discussion. You, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when I used to tell him, 
what's going on in the world of Kashrut, he would just shake his head. Right? As an Orthodox rabbi who grew up in Borough Park, he's like, you know, we didn't have two ovens, you know, when I was grew up in Borough Park, you know. We didn't have like two sinks. You know, we didn't have they, we didn't even have glad kosher. You know, glad is like a, a strict thing and it only applies to beef. He's like the idea of having glad chicken, kosher chicken is ridiculous. There's no such thing. Um, as a glot kosher chicken, by the way. That's just true. They, uh, 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 um, a slaughterhouse is labeled as being supervised to the level of glot kosher, so they stick that label on everything. But there's no such thing as a glot kosher chicken. It applies to uh, like a little tiny, it's called a sircha, a little tiny like blemish in a lung on a cow. That's all it applies to glot kosher. That they go to that level of making sure that the... the and, and broccoli and lettuce. Right, and then the broccoli and the lettuce. Actually, sorry, we're on an aside here, but I will tell you that the, the broccoli and the lettuce one, at least, has biblical origin because you're not really allowed to eat the insects. So at least there's, they're trying to preserve an actual biblical law as opposed to eating um, a, a, a grilled cheese on your meat dish can't find that anywhere in the Torah. There's nothing that prohibits that in the Torah. So anyway, we've gone offside. Point is, is that kosher's not obvious. Um, um, so maybe this theory is correct. All right, let's let's um, let's let's go to some of the texts. I spent a lot of time on that, so we may not do as many secondary sources, but that's okay. Um, we want to be on commentary number one, page thirty-two. May I have a different volunteer to read the thirteenth-century Chizkuni? Uh, Commentary on Shemot and the first Dibur, the first utterance. Anybody willing? Larry, go ahead. I am the Lord your God is the first statement. I command you to affirm that I am your master because I took you out from the land of Egypt. And by the right by right I am the Lord, I am Lord over you. From the house of slaves, and it is better for you to serve me than to serve those slaves. That I took you out. He could have said that I made you, or that I created you, or he could have re- referenced to any number of kind acts that he performed in his creations, which would have afforded him the chance to claim rights over us, to compel us to accept his commandments. However, had he done so, we would have been able to respond, did you not do so with all the other nations? Why are you strapping only us with the yoke of your commandments? That is why he referenced to something which he did did not do for any other nation. I love this classic Judaism. Yes, I love this commentary not because I agree with it, but it brings up some really interesting points. And there's a couple of smart observations that he makes or that he turns into points. First of all, it's always important to ask the question in a commentary. It's like I learned it with Rashi, the commentator. Makashela Rashi. What's what's bothering Rashi? Why is he giving this commentary? You you should do that for all the commentators. In other words, what's what what is he trying to answer here? There's a question that's not always obvious. It's not written as like here's the question I'm answering and now I'm going to answer it. There's something underneath this that is causing him to make this commentary. So a you can if you want to take a stab at what you think that is, and b what are some of his salient points here that he's trying to make even if it's not the main reason that he's making this comment. Anyone want to... You can't be wrong. I mean, just think and uh, guess or comment. Anyone want to... Is he addressing the for those that still might think that at this point this could have been circumstantial, uh, how you got here? So I am yet again proving to you that uh, the reason you're here is because of me. 
great. So there is a purposefulness to my to you being here and me giving you this Torah. So that's definitely, I think, part of what's going on here. Anyone else? Think about the contrast with the Christian version of the Ten Commandments, which the, so then the underlying question becomes... Why is this a commandment at all? Why is this a commandment? How is it possible that saying, I am the Lord your God, is actually the first commandment as opposed to an introduction? And how does he make it into a commandment? He says, I command you to affirm that I am your master. In other words, it's basically, you need to say that I am the Lord your God. And how do I know that it's a commandment to affirm that? There's a because... Because I took you out from the land of Egypt, and then the commentary says, and by right, I am the Lord over you. In other words, my commandment is, you need to affirm me as your Lord, and the reason you need to affirm me as your Lord is because you owe me. (laughs) I own you, you know, basically. I saved you and brought you out, and now you're mine. And how do I know, and and I'm using this language on purpose. Go to the next phrase. How do I know that God sees us as his? Because I redeemed you from the house of slaves. And it is better for you to serve me than to serve those slaves. You've traded one slavery for another. Right, but it's not. Who is the slaves? The Egyptians. They pretended to be your masters, but who are they? They're They're my slaves too. Right, exactly. Because I am the Lord your God. I'm the only Lord. Right? And you're mine. And you were theirs, meaning Egypt, pretend. Like, you, you thought of yourselves and they thought of you as slaves. But now you serve me. Well, then you have proved it to them. You have proved it to them. You have proved them that they, the Egyptians were their slaves. True. And during the, during the plagues. Right. Um, now, I'm speaking in, like, it's not Darth Vader, but, you know, I'm speaking in that, like, evil emperor type of voice. But that's not, obviously, how he sees God as an evil emperor. He does, but he, uh, I'm making the point to say, he's basically saying, you traded up big time. You were the slaves of the Egyptians, but now you're my servants. So isn't it going from being a slave of a slave to being a slave directly to God? Yes. Okay. And you're supposed to think that that's good, though, right? Maybe then we, we, we change the English word and we say servant. But in Hebrew, it's the same word. Eved is both a slave and Eved is also a servant. And it depends on context, or Avadim are workers, right? It depends on the context of the verse to know. That's one of the hard things and the easiest things about Hebrew. There's a limited amount of Shorashim roots, Right, So you can learn Hebrew faster than English in a lot of different ways because once you master the roots, you can kind of get the gist of a lot of things quicker. But on the other hand, you can get confused because you, you think you know the root, but you pick the wrong version You know, when tr- interpreting. Um, I had a biblical uh, professor, Professor uh, uh, Stephen Geller in J- at JTS, and he said at the beginning of every Bible class that he ever took that ever course with him is... Are there any Israelis in the room? Raise your hand. That's what he'd do. You know, one or two or three or whatever it was. He's like, you will have the toughest time translating in this class because you will read the Hebrew and you will think that you know how to translate the Hebrew and inevitably you will be wrong. (laughs) And he said it because 
biblical Hebrew and modern Hebrew sometimes differ in which, like you get to the word Eved and an Israeli might translate it one way because they don't really call anybody slaves anymore or whatever. Or, so they would read it as workers perhaps. Or so. You get the wrong translation. Plus there's grammatical forms that are different too. That was his other big point. Anyway, point is you, you traded, you used to be slaves to Egypt, but now because I brought you out of Egypt, you're mine. By being God's slave, that at least that implies that well, by being God's slaves, it means that we're here for a purpose, for God's purpose. Absolutely. There's an ultimate purpose. Because to be like an Egyptian slave, what kind of purpose is that? Right? But to be God's slave or servants, if we want to soften the term, um, well, that's a good thing. Um, yeah. There's also, it's not mentioned right here, but there, we have these series of, of covenants. Sure. So the, in Egypt, no one was promising anything back in return. For sure. And that we, we haven't yet, you know, connected the dots to, but I appreciate you bringing that up. It's definitely more of a partnership here. Um, kind of did say that, though. It, it's kind of, you know, when you work for the Egyptians, they told you what to do. But here, trust in me because I delivered you. I brought you out. So working for me and believing in me is a whole different... See, I see it's much kinder. Yes. And, and look what he says. In his commentary, from the house of slaves, it is better for you to serve me than to serve those slaves. He's contrasting, it's much better for you to, to be my servant. He, he did. Now, in that last paragraph, though, there's a very, I think, insightful point. And it's just, it's always a questioning the assumptions that the, the text brings to you. Right? We read the Ten Commandments, we say, you know, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and we just, we get used to that. And then, you know, Chizkuni um, says, why does it say that I'm Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt? Didn't he do one better than that? Didn't he create the world? Didn't he create you? Didn't he do more than bring you out of the land of Egypt? Aren't there like a hundred kindnesses that God has, has done that are like major, that are recorded in the Torah? It's like he's why is that the main, the main uh, way to know you? Way to know God. It's particular. It's not universal. Right. It's and right. That, that becomes the answer. Particular Jewish way. Right. Um, be- go ahead, Right. No, I yes, to repeat that. I go. just said it's, it's particular. It's not universal. Right. right. But it's also the most recent thing that happened. It's, it's, it's also that's true. That's really right. what, what they're very, We're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that's actually a great, what we would call contextual shot answer. Right. That's probably more likely the answer. Right, if you're just reading the story, of course, that's what just happened to them. That's when they witnessed, right? Um, that this is what they went through. That's the thing that you should recite as relevant. The fact that God one day, you know, now we know it's billions of years ago, created the universe. Um, fine, <laughs> but the fact that you just saved us <laughs> in this miraculous way from Egypt—that's like really in my kishkas and on my heart right now. And, and those things were all true while they were slaves in Egypt. True. They still knew that God created the universe and the God Correct. did all these other things, but what did it do for me later? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. If this were any other person saying these things, you would almost characterize them as being a little bit uh, insecure or a little bit defensive or sort of, you know, why they have a need to sort of lay out their case for you. Why, why would God have to be uh, reaffirmed? Why would God need this kind of reaffirmation from these people if he just did the greatest thing in the world. That's an awesome point, right? Um, I think the point is, and tell me if I'm wrong, is that, you know, there's this, why would God need to, to, to give a reason 
know, yeah. I brought you out of the land of... What do you mean? They were already awestruck. Yeah. Well, so Gad's got this talk. plan. He's, he's setting it to motion here. Right. Mm-hmm. But I think it's what you said first. It's, it could have been a coincidence. I'm telling you, yeah. what, it wasn't a yeah. coincidence. Mm-hmm. It's what you said first. Yeah. Maybe. Um, there's also other reasons that uh, Egypt, um, and this is whoever mentioned the ethical laws about, um, you know, being kind to the stranger because you were once slaves in Egypt and all those things. Uh, the, the same resonance could actually be taken here, which is different from what Chris Cooney is saying. But that the reason that that becomes God's appellation, the one who redeemed us from the land of Egypt, is because it's a constant reminder that God actually is a redeeming, a positive force in the world. God cares about us. Um, God not only cares about us, but also, in a funny way, it's more universal. This is taking it as particular, like, you were slaves, other people are slaves. You were strangers, other people are strangers. It's actually a more universalistic type of idea. A nurturing feeling, like, you know, I redeemed you. I'm a nice guy, right? You want to be in a covenant with me. I saved you. I, I like to save people. You know, I'm, I'm, in a, I'm, a, I'm a good force. <laughs> um, like me. Um, but what I also find interesting, I don't have this attitude, but I find it very interesting, is how does he view the the, the receiving of the Torah and getting these commandments. Is he positive about it? Oh, what does he say? Oh, yoke. Yoke. Um, he said, did you not do so with all the other nations? In other words, this, this idea of being particular is like, well, then I could claim, didn't you, didn't you also offer this Torah to everybody else? But then in the way that he says it, he says, why are you strapping only us? with the yoke of your commandments, like, why did you single us out for this burden, you know, of the commandments, right? That's why I referenced to something which he did not do for any other nation. He said, yeah, it is only for you. (laughs) You are the only ones who have to carry the burden of the commandments, Um, which is interesting. And and in context, you know, in medieval France, it probably was quite a burden. Right. And this goes back to Renee's distinctiveness, right? Um, uh, distinctiveness, when it's good, is you feel unique and affirmed um, and special. Distinctiveness, when you're being persecuted for it or when it seems like you're alienated because of it, that doesn't feel so good, right? So probably being singled out for the commandments can be either seen in a positive or a negative light, depending on your situation at the time. Now, I wouldn't say that he's saying that it's negative, but I would say that he doesn't see it as only the upside of privilege. He sees it as, this is like a pretty heavy responsibility. Like, thanks, but pretty heavy responsibility, right? This is a big deal. Um, which I think, in reality, is a nice, is a, probably a true reflection of it, right? It's not easy to follow all these commandments. Right? It's not easy. Um, and uh, there is some of that. And perhaps back to one of the two of you said something about orthodox. Um, was that Rod? Mm-hmm. So it comes back to perhaps like a more orthodox understanding of things, which is um, I once had a conversation with an ultra-orthodox rabbi who likes to like to present to like secular and mixed Jewish communities and you know be the ultra-orthodox guy to right. present the views to the... And this is in Israel where it was like less common. He's not Chabad, he's not Chabad, but he was somebody like... So, and he was insistent when people asked him, if I didn't believe that God said every single one of those words, there's no way I would do all these commandments. Right? 
Whereas I have all these reasons why I would do the commandments, even if I wasn't sure it was God who gave them. He was like, I would literally become completely secular if I thought, you know, maybe not completely, but maybe over... He's like, there's no way I would do these things if I didn't think God said I had to. But I see it as a privilege to serve Hashem. Right? It's like, he and Chis Kuni could be best friends, right? It's a privilege. God's the commander-in-chief. It's my privilege to do what God says. Do I always understand the commands? No, I don't. Is it always fun to do the commandments? No, it's not. But it's a privilege to serve. It's a privilege to serve. Right? If I'm serving the true commander-in-chief, then it's a privilege to serve. Is it, a, is it always a, you know, a barrel of laughs? No. It's, it's, in fact, it's sometimes a yoke. It's a, it's a great burden. But I'm, 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 I'm privileged to bear the burden. Um, if I didn't actually think that the commander-in-chief had given this to me, forget it, I'd be at the beach. That's kind of you know, what this guy said. I don't know if that's exactly what Chris Cooney would say. But I'm, it's an interesting approach. It's not my approach. It's not a Maimonides approach. It's not a Hasidic approach. It's, there's a lot of approaches that it's not. It's completely but logical. It, but it, what? It's completely logical. It's completely logical. Um, there's a... There's a um, now I'm blanking on his first name. Uh, Leibowitz. Um, he's a... Yishayahu Leibowitz, right. Um, he... His... Thank you. He's a, a contemporary um, Israeli theologian. And he is an anti-Maimonidean thinker, which means he doesn't care about rationales for the commandments. He's like, the answer is, God is God, God said the commandments, we do the commandments. Any other reason for doing the commandments is getting you closer to idol worship. It's like worshiping the wrong reason. It doesn't matter, you know, whether it's the sun, the moon, or because it's spiritually fulfilling. It's all the wrong reason. The core is... God said it, I'm commanded, I do it. Anything else is a dilution of the true reason that we do the commandments. It has its appeal. It does have its appeal. These are not just some facts you need to know that I'm giving you. I'm drawing you into a relationship. I'm establishing that this is reciprocal and this is something we're going to do together. And I started it when I took you out of Egypt. Right. But the premise of that type of theology is God gave discrete commandments that were precise and eternal exactly as they were written. On Mount Sinai. On Mount Sinai. <laughs> Maimonides, Maimonides, being more of a philosopher type, he says, what makes human beings in the image of God? What makes our... He says it's this, the noodle. And he says, so... We need to be able to discern the commandments. We need to be able to understand them because the true nature of the commandments can ultimately, maybe not all at once, maybe it could take thousands and thousands of years or maybe we never totally get there, but we need to discern the true nature of the commandments and the true reason. He was actually the opposite. He created a whole system of what we call Tameh HaMitzvot. What are the real reasons for all the commandments? Because he believed that our job was... To, to dig deep, to figure out what the reason for the commandment was, why God gave us the commandment, so we could truly understand it and live it. So his version is, hey, there's a command. On the surface, I have to do the command. But in order to really get in touch with the pure essence of that command, I need to understand it, I need to dig in, I need to figure it out. And God gave us a noodle to do that. Leibowitz would say, or maybe Chiskuni would say, the pure reason to do the command 
is because you were commanded. That's it, right? Now, he might, Huskuni might say, it's, it's fine to think of other rationales. Leibowitz would say, you're either wasting your time or you're diluting the real purpose. Um, there are different kind of variations of that theory, but there, you can see how they're both attractive on some level, or maybe you, you definitely are in one camp versus the other, but, and there are camps in between, by the way. There are other ways to look at it. But then if you are a do-it-because-I-said-so person, how do you distinguish between Chukim and Mishpatim? Um, that's a really good question. And by the way, can you prop the door back open again? Because it's gotten really warm in here. And I think the, I th- think the, uh, I think the vacuum's done. Um, so the distinction between a chok and a mishpat for Maimonides, is that what you mean? Because he's trying to find the rationale? For... Or for Leibowitz. For Chizkuni. Right. If do it because I said so, and then... We have. So he would just say, he would just subvert it all into, if God wanted to give us the rationale, then he did, and now we know what it is. So that's great. Oh, so do it because God said so for this reason. But don't try to, there's no, uh, five different reasons. There, if the, the reason isn't there, don't try to guess. Which is so, so amazing with the Talmudic tradition of questioning absolutely right. everything. Right. Well, they would just, that's it, says it, no question. I think that's why that, that philosophy, which is a bit more fundamentalist, and didn't really win out. You know, it's not the mainstream of Judaism at all. Yeah. You know, I think you're oversimplifying, you know, what they're saying because For sure. it's not clear, and you have to dig and dig and dig to try to understand, well, what was the commandment? And right. that's, what the, that's what the town's all about. Right. That's what all the jobs back and forth is all about. It's to try to figure out, well, yeah. what does this really mean? It's a really good point. And that what, is, what did God want? Well, there, there, it's a really good between what does this really mean and what did God want. I exactly. don't think you can ever know what God wants. So I think when people yeah, say that, it's that our, is a waste of time. That's what the but you all can about. dig and right. try to figure it out with other means, but not try to think It's a really that. important point, and it's a, a really important debate in all of religion and in Jewish... You know, we, we discussed this one commentary last week also about which perspective it should be from. I think Jay... Prostowski was the one who challenged it. He's like, I don't know what God wants. How does anybody know what God wants? Right? right. What are, are, you pre- are you pretending you're in God's head? Who's in God's head? No one's in God's head. Mm-hmm. The question is, is like, how do I understand <laughs> things? What am I going to do about what's being presented in front of me? And we were talking about it from looking at it from either God's point of view or Moses' right. point of view, Revelation. He's like, I'm a Moses' point of view guy. Like, I'm looking at it through Moses' eyes. I don't know what God's eyes are. And this is, there is a debate about are we trying to understand what God wants? Or are we trying to understand how the, the tradition is asking us to behave as a reflection of being in a relationship with God? Um, and the other thing that I wanted to differentiate um, that you brought up, Rod, is the difference between um, debating what the ultimate reason for a commandment is and debating what the commandment is. Because I, it's very important to debate what the commandment is for any theology, right? What, what, what is God asking, or to put it in a different way, what is the Torah asking as a reflection of being in a relationship with God, right? Um, what is it is different than, well, what's the ultimate meaning? Where's the, why? the why? And Leibowitz would say, if it doesn't say, then it doesn't say, just do it. And Maimonides would say, use your noodle, turn it over, try to figure it out. Um, and, but they would both agree that you have to figure out what it actually is <laughs> and then what it means to actually follow that commandment. And that, that is seriously debated in all of tradition, no matter what your theology is.
Um, all right. Um, not. Th- all right, I'll, I'll give you one more word. I just one more. One thing. more deep word. You know, Moses on Mount Sinai for forty days, and what was it to learn these sixteen lines? So what was no. going on for forty days? No, no, no. These these came before the forty days. So clearly. Well, I don't think so. Okay. Um, um, to me, it's clear that this is not what Moses was doing on on uh, on Mount Sinai. Was just this. What was he doing for forty years? That was my question. Tough, yeah. Tough though, you know, it takes a little while. <laughs> <laughs> Mark Stanley. You're training him. There, there's definitely a debate. God carved the first set of Lukos. Right? If you ask the mystics, Moses was learning all the oral every. Little crown, crown on the Torah and its meaning, like that's right. Like every little thing, every little thing. Bruce would not like that <laughs> theology there. Um, all right, let's go to number two, and then I'm really gonna have to make a choice because I had like four or five sources, and now I might be one more after this. So. Um, Benno Jacob, um, a more contemporary rabbi, it says German rabbi and biblical scholar, immigrated to England, you know, right at the, uh, he he escaped before the Holocaust and was in England while the Holocaust was happening um, and unfortunately died, like, right towards the end um, anyway. Um, But um, this is what he said. Who wants to read Benno Jacob for me? Anyone? Go ahead. One of you guys can arm wrestle or something. (laughs) (laughs) The pathetic undertones of this situation were expressed by out of the house of bondage and equally through the contrast of this phrase to the words, the land of Egypt. Mm -hmm. This referred not only to the territory, but had other overtones as Egypt was the richest and the most blessed of lands, a veritable garden of Eden. It was a land of highest cultural and greatest political power. All these characteristics meant nothing when weighed against the fact that it was also a house of bondage. He, however, had created man to be free. The highest form of freedom is found in divine service. If liberty and culture could not coexist, then men should bid farewell to culture for the sake of freedom. Think of the context and then read it again. I get chills every time I read it. What? Pretend that this is a sermon and not a scholarly exegesis of the Torah. Mm-hmm. Like, what's going on here? Do you Live see the layers? <laughs> what? Live free or die. Live free or but what? <laughs> Egypt is what in his mind? Germany. Right. Egypt is Germany. Egypt is the highest form of civilization at the time. Mm-hmm. The culture is exquisite. The intellect is flowing. Everything mm-hmm. is like highbrow. Right? But... It's also a house of bondage, right? So, um, and if it's a house of bondage, then it's not worth anything. It's evil. Um, and therefore, all these characteristics meant nothing when weighed against the fact that it was also a house of bondage. You see, like a Holocaust survivor whose family died, was dying at the time, this is what he's saying, like Germany, highbrow, feh, right? If they're a house of bondage and this is what they're doing to people, I don't care how highbrow they think they are, or their, how high their culture is, or how smart their professors are. It doesn't matter if this is how they're, if they're enslaving other people. Um, and he compares that to Egypt. And it wasn't, it wasn't simply that, you know, they got out of Egypt. It's that they got out of the house of bondage. And he raises up, if liberty and culture could not coexist then men should bid farewell to culture for the sake of freedom. 
freedom becomes the ultimate value. But, freedom interestingly, yeah. freedom, freedom from, for what? Freedom from bondage. From bondage, to but God. to what? Out to serve to God. God. To serve God. So, interestingly, the freedom is, in a classic sense, it, it doesn't make sense. If you're talking about American freedom, then American freedom would be, I'm free so that I can do whatever the heck I want, right? As long as I don't hurt you, right? <laughs> This freedom isn't to free to do the whatever the heck I want. The free to serve it's the God. freedom to serve God, yeah. right? So it's combined with the first source. It's like freedom to be in God's servitude, right? Um, which is a very interesting understanding of freedom. So go ahead, Mary. Well, all I can think about is like some of the more like fundamentalist religions too that maybe they also relate culture to like education or discussion different ideas, technology even, and how some of these other like more fundamentalist religions or sects of religion kind of isolate themselves. And they don't let their kids watch TV or, you know, homeschool their kids because they don't want them having this outside cultural influence because they just want to serve God. And that's what freedom is to them. Interesting. Right. Yeah, there could it could it happens in ultra orthodoxy to some degree. Fundamentalist orthodoxy. Fundamentalist fundamental. Right. No, no, I mean um, um That's why I use that word. Yeah, a relative uh, a relative of mine is uh, in a messianic Christian kind of group and they all homeschool. Right. For that reason. Right. They don't want them being they don't want them being mixed in with the public school kids that even the other Christians that mm-hmm. that worship God differently or have different conceptions of materialistic culture in their mind or whatever it is that they're trying to protect their right, and we think it's kids weird, from. But their whole reason for doing it is like for this freedom. Very interesting. That serving God is the ultimate freedom. So Mary's insight is, is that you know as much as this is a reaction against the Holocaust, yeah. it may come up with a a, a theology that ends up maybe leading to a. Um, what's it called? Um, culture. A, a culture, well, I don't want to call it, but a, a culture in which it's a self-contained. I was searching for another word, but I can't, I can't think of the word I was looking for. Puritanical. Um, maybe puritanical. Um, but that's interesting, too. I just thought this was um, an interesting example of how you can take a biblical phraseology, right, here that's in the Ten Commandments, um, the Ten Utterances, and you could give a Devar Torah or a commentary about it, and the parallelism to the contemporary milieu is like so apparent and powerful. Um, and to come up with like a, a sermon at the end that is that freedom is the ultimate value um, in the lesson of this first commandment. It's like, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, you brought you out of the land of Egypt. The, what is his take on that? That God is saying that the meaning of being the one God in our lives is that we all have radical freedom, right? That we shouldn't be enslaved by other people to serve only God. We should never be in a position where we have to serve something lesser than God. That's freedom. And that's the ultimate value. That's what it means that there is a God. Um, That's his ultimate message, which is powerful. I don't know if I agree with it, but it's powerful. All right. Thoughts about that? All right, um, let's skip to source five. Um, let me find it in your book. It's on page 37. 37. Yeah. 37. Ibn Ezra. Um, 
11th, 12th century, um, major, major commentator. Um, astrologist. It also says, yeah, that he says, the astrologist part I didn't really know until I saw that as a list here in the list. I know he was a poet there, and I know that he was an early scientist, and he was definitely known for the last thing that it lists here, which is his grammar. He was a big grammar commentator in the, in the Torah. When I was in rabbinical school, he was my least favorite commentator because I'm not a grammar person. And I was like, oh, here we go again with the grammar. You know, give me Rashi or somebody else. <laughs> you know? but, but the grammar always led to very intelligent um, commentary. He just did it, he often did it through the, the vehicle of grammar and his deep knowledge of, of Hebrew language and biblical language. All right, would somebody be kind enough? Go ahead, Mary, please. The reason for mentioning the name of God is this. Oh, sorry, I, I forgot. We're talking about now the commandment, the third commandment, taking God's name in vain. So just, I'm sorry I interrupted you, but just to reread that commandment so that we keep it in our mind. Um, you shall not swear falsely by the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not clear one who swears falsely by his name. That was happening a lot, apparently. P- apparently, that's a good legal theory is always if there's a law against it, then probably people were doing it, right? That's a lot of the theory sometimes in um, why certain things are mentioned um, in laws that are given like case by case or historically laid out because people were doing things. Um, but I just want to point out to you that what's unlike... You know, the later ones, like 7, 8, 9, where it's just boom, 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 you shall not. This is, you shall not swear falsely by the name of the Lord your God. It could have been period, right? What's added? For the Lord will not clear one who swears falsely by his name. It adds kind of an extra stamp on that. Um, And that's part of what's going on. All right, anyway, sorry, go ahead. Okay, so the reason for mentioning the name of God is this. Just as the name is true, so should man's word be true. If man does not keep his word, then this is tantamount to repudiating the name. It is the custom of the men of Egypt to this day to swear by the head of the king, and he who does not keep his word is liable to be put to death. No ransom of gold will help him since he has publicly disgraced the king. If that is the case with a king of flesh and blood, how infinitely more careful must a person be to guard his tongue from causing him to stumble and allowing his mouth to cause his flesh to sin by making mention of him in vain. No, yeah. no reward is appended to any of the Ten Commandments except in the case of honoring parents, and the only explicit punishment appended is in the case of idolatry and the taking the name in vain. Many think that taking the Lord's name in vain is not a very serious transgression, but I shall show them that it is more heinous than all the don'ts that follow. For, first, before we get to his rationale, what's going on here? What is he doing? I don't know if it's interesting to you or not. I thought it was interesting. Um, but do, do, you, do you understand what he's doing? Prioritizing. So he is prioritizing. He's noticing distinctive language in the text, and he's trying to say, well, and he mentions the three special things. There's reward for honoring parents, and there's only two commandments where it actually identifies, in some ways, uh, punishment. Right? So that must mean something. Right? He's imputing meaning to the fact that these three are unique, one on the positive side and two on the negative side. So that's number one, or I don't know if it's number one, but it is one of the things that he's doing here. What else is he doing? He's suggesting that that makes them, that it takes priority, that makes them more important or more emphasis on the others. And he's actually explaining why specifically using God's name falsely in vain is one of the ones that gets you a bad punishment, right? 
why it's the most severe. And he starts out by saying that if human beings understand that swearing by the name of the king in vain should be death, then all the more so if you do it with God, right? And then he starts to expand. And this is what I want you to, partially what I want you to see. And this just happens in the commentary all the time, and it's one of our greatest strengths. And sometimes it's frustrating about Judaism, but it is one of our greatest strengths. It makes us one of the most ancient peoples that are still having a very relevant, alive, robust religion still today. We're very unique in that sense. And we're continuing to grow and innovate and and be robust and relevant, even though we're extremely ancient in our origins. And, and not only that, but we, we still connect back to our ancient explicitly, right? We, we like that connection. We still, we still draw that connection proudly for ourselves. So, but what's he doing here? It's not just taking God's name in vain. He's talking about it. If a man does not keep his word, then it is tantamount to repudiating the name. So he's expanded. It's not just saying God's name and saying something that's false. It's any time that you say something that's not true. That in and of itself is using God's name in vain. It's tantamount to. Human beings shouldn't utter something false. That is directly against what God wants from the human being. So he's just expanded really large this command from what a minimalist, at least reading, or a closer reading, would do to that text, which is just that if I use God's name in a sentence that is in vain, then that would be a violation of the commandment. Now, anytime I utter a falsehood, I'm violating this command. That's big, right? And he wants to show us now in the, in the, in the rest of the content why he thinks that uttering false, falsehoods is really a core commandment that is uh, repudiating God's name and why it gets special attention. Keep reading. For both the murderer and adulterer, for all that these are serious transgressions, cannot be committing them at all times since they are deterred by fear. So what does that mean, anyone? In your own words? People know there's accountability for those. That's They're going to come after shot. you. Yep. And that's not uniquely Jewish. Right, exactly. Because other people are going to come after you. That's right. God. Whatever society you're in, if you're going to go around, you know, killing people or sleeping with other people's spouses, eventually somebody's going to come after you, right? And so you're not going to be doing that all the time, um, right? Because the, the fear of getting caught. The fear of getting caught. And, 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 the, and the system and the way human nature works that people will automatically resist you um, for that. Okay. You have to. Yeah, you ha- and you have to, and especially in the murdering case. All right, keep going. But he who has grown accustomed to taking oaths in vain will utter any number of oaths in the course of one day. He will be so used to committing this transgression that he will not be aware that he is sworn. If you reprove him, why have you sworn? He will then, from sheer force of habit, swear to you that he did not take an oath. (laughs) (laughs) They interlard every word of theirs with an oath. It is indeed a kind of empathetic, picturesque speech with them. All right. What's his claim, whether you agree with him or not? Let's just understand what he's saying first before we say what we want to say. If you just constantly lie all the time, you you can't even remember what's... You're so used to doing it. He's saying that... Before we get to where you guys are, which is that once you're already doing it, it keeps going and it takes over everything. But he's saying that, whereas 
Murder will get people to resist you, and then you will recognize what you're doing as murder. And even if you don't agree that it's bad, or even though you know that it's bad, but you have a compulsion for some reason to continue to do it, you're able to identify what you're doing and know that society at least thinks that what you're doing is bad. With speech, you can just become a person who goes down the slippery slope of uttering something false, you know, swearing that you'll do something and not fulfilling it, and no recourse. There's, there's, on a constant basis, there's no recourse. Overall, you can imagine somebody, you know, ruining their life. You know, people not trusting them anymore, or whatever. But it's not in the same sense as getting arrested for murder. And over time, you could become in the habit and get co- so caught up in it. And that's the comical part: is that, you know, if somebody says, "You swore to me," I never swore that, right? It could, it's endless, right? <laughs> Lying can be endless, and and oftentimes there's no. Certain things you can prove that they lied, but if it's that constant, it's impossible to keep up with the lies, right? You can't always like throw it back in somebody's face, right? It could be like politics. And they don't know, right? So, and so people might actually be more attracted to you because you're telling them a good story or Right, whatever. exactly. And that that's part of his point that it becomes like a picture X. No. there was something I didn't want to say that someone else said, so I was just oh. throwing you it. probably had to do with politics, which is why I'm trying to ignore, I'm trying to ignore it. Um, I just because I work here I kept my mouth shut. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I would hear it so Bethel thanks you. Um, um, okay. right, so that yeah, sometimes when you lie, you know, it becomes an art. Right? But we've used, that's a phrase, you know, it's an art form. And sometimes you lie, you can't remember what you said that you lied about. You that's remember. right, it becomes who you are. So his case, before we get too involved, his case is, is that even things that seem like the worst thing in the world, like murder, on some level, they're not as bad for society or for, the, for, for other people as the liar and the one who takes oaths in vain. Let's see how he finishes up, and then we can talk more about it if you want. Were this the only transgression Israel were guilty of, it would suffice to prolong the exile and add insult to our injuries. I shall show you their madness. The murderer, at least, when he murders his enemy, has sated his desire with his vengeance. The adulterer, too, has also for the time being. (laughs) And so has the thief found satisfaction of his needs and the false witness to appease himself or get even. But the one who swears falsely at all times, when not under oath, publicly profanes the name of heaven without benefit to himself. That's the thing. That's interesting. It's not just swearing. It's not just lying. It's using God's name in vain. That up to this point, we're told that relationship with God is to lift us up. But if you start trying to bring the divine down into mundane, you're doing, it is profane. You are reducing what we were told to elevate. You're bringing it down. Yeah, I will say that the one thing that I want to just differ on is, is that I don't. I, I really do believe he's expanding. He's not saying only using God's name in vain. I, yeah, he he has expanded it, but the, but that's, that is an expansion. <laughs> Got it. Okay, so then we right. agree. Yeah. Um, yeah, and one of the things that he says here, right, is is that whether you agree with him or not, in like certain psychology of some mass murderers, is that. They aren't actually sated to a degree. But but just putting aside some of that, you know, he's going on the assumption that you are, your blood is up and you murder somebody. And for some sort of time being, 
you did what you did, and now you kind of there's a release, and you don't do it for a certain period of time, even if you weren't caught. You know that there there's like a, a a trough thing going on, and certainly with sexual desire that would that would happen naturally. But when it comes to lying, there's no there's no there's no trough. I mean, um, and the other thing that he's saying is is that perhaps even if it's a sick reason. There's a reason that somebody might want to murder somebody. You know, they're angry at them, they hurt their friend, they did this. There's a reason that somebody might want to have sex with somebody else, right? And they have a benefit to it, a desire. Um, at some point when the liar gets really caught in their lies, they're not even doing it for a specific benefit anymore, right? It's like they're just, they're just lying um, and for, for, because they're in the habit of lying. Um, and this is where he says this is the sick part of lying is, is that in the end, it's not even for a particular benefit, and it can go on incessantly. And his conclusion, which is at the beginning of the paragraph, is, were this the only transgression Israel guilty of, it would suffice to prolong the exile and add insult to our injuries. Right? Lying alone could have kept us out of the land of Israel, you know, if this was our, our, uh, um, our sin. It ties into so. Colney Dre a little bit, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, it does tie into Colney Dre. I mean, it ties into High Holidays in general because most of the um, uh, al-chets are about uh, sins of, your, of speech, mm-hmm. for sure. All right, so we're about two or three minutes from time. Um, I just want to point out to you uh, another source, and then, because um, uh, uh, I think it's nice to think about Source 6, Sajigaon. Oh, it's, is that the next one? Yes. It's on page 39. So I'm going to skip the whole beginning of it. It's really long. This is about Shabbat. And he makes this whole thing about this, uh, the importance of the number 7. Right? Where he says, uh, My pure ones remember the 10 wonders. You know, I, Each one I prefer the 7th on account of Shabbat. And 7 firmaments and 7 this and 7 that and 7 this. And he goes on to point out you know, why the seven is so important, and then in, in that, that, that continues with the idea of, of Shabbat. Um, but what I want to skip to is the last paragraph of his commentary on page 40, line 25. I just want to <coughs> present to you Saja Gaon, who's like a 9th or 10th century uh, guy, um, what he already says about Shabbat in, the, in that time period. It is for these virtuous qualities that I have preferred every seventh, including the, the Jubilee year and all these things. And I have preferred the Sabbath over all of them. So he just got two paragraphs of why seven is awesome and all these great awesome sevens. And now he's saying the Sabbath is better than all of them. And I have given it a name through which all are blessed. It is a day of, and here's the list, a day of faith, a day of blessing, an elevated day, a day for indulgence, a day of joy, a day for honor, a day for visiting, a holiday, a day of purity, a day to take pride in, a great day, a day to wear fine clothes, a holiday, a holy day, a clean day, a happy day, a mighty day, a preferred day, a day for charity, a day for reading, an exalted day, a fearful day, a constant day, the day on which the creation of the world was completed, a day in which those who dwell in hell shall rest from their torments. So It's more than seven, though. <laughs> more than seven rationales um, so I'll leave I'll, I'll leave you with this I'll leave you with this think about Shabbat in your own life you know make your own Sajagaon list what it's a day of um, think think about um, how Saja paints Shabbat 
Um, which I don't think in some, many of the things wouldn't be alien to how probably we'd like to view Shabbat, but it's nice to see a 10th century scholar. Shabbat is like awesome, right? It's, it's supposed to be a day of joy, a day of visiting. It's already family day. This isn't a modern 21st century that Shabbat is like about being with your family, about resting, about having a good time, right? It's, it's already in the 10th century. This is what Sajid says Shabbat is all about. There are certain things in here about a holiday, purity, and things. But it, what's interesting is it doesn't say like a day of like, it says reading, yeah. but it doesn't say a day of like all day Torah study or a day of, you know, religious piety or a, a day of sitting in the prayer house and davening all day long. You know, it's, it's interesting, right? It, the day is talked about in these uplifting, joyous terms, and it's so complete that it even includes the people in hell, whatever he meant by hell, um, they get a rest from their torments, right, on Shabbat. Shabbat is like a cosmic state of mind um, for, that, for that day that takes over everything in the universe, um, including beyond, you know, our life on earth. You know, it even goes into hell um, and, and, and takes over that. Um, and, and that's kind of when one of the answer, questions that he's kind of quietly answering is why Shabbat is singled out um, as like the only kind of holiday or ritual type of commandment that exists in the ten or the ten utterances. It's the only utterance that is kind of really ritual in, in nature and why it gets this billing um, in, in the way that it does. Because um, he's, he's talking about it as like kind of an ultimate um, basis, you know, of kind of Jewish spirituality. So anyway... Hope you got something out of today.